Welcome back to Benamat's Marvelous Journey. This is an MCU podcast. My name is Matt. I am joined by Ben. That is how it's Ben and Matt. Ben, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We both watched this last night. We did. I was you an hour ahead of you for an hour ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, uh, I decided to watch Toy Story 2 first. I will not start that debate again. Um, <laughs> good movie. No, I never said it wasn't a good movie. Just... No, that's the thing is, no one will ever say it's a bad movie, but it's just, it's, it's probably the most intense. Genuinely. I would, say tr- I would say trilogy, but it's not a trilogy anymore. Genuinely blew my mind wide open to hear that it's, like, beloved. But it was more like I never hear anyone talk about it. I only hear people talk about one and three. My memory was it was decent. And then just you were, like, violently, like, no, two is, like, the one. It, it's, like, the greatest movie ever made. Here are 100 reviews that give it five stars. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. It felt like when Mike Thomas didn't realise Shrek is a meme all over the internet. Speaking of movies with 100 five-star reviews... <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's true. No, it absolutely is not true. But yes, this um, is episode 31. This is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Their first venture back into actual brick-and-mortar theatres, cinemas, after the, the Disney Plus release of Black Widow. Well, Black Widow came out in, in theatres as well. Yeah, but it was like, it was like this was like Disney going, like, right, we're not going to have this as a premiere access. You we can't, can't have every one of our stars suing us. <laughs> Simu Liu probably doesn't have the clout to do it. Probably <laughs> not. Like, he probably doesn't have the back-end deal that ScarJo had on yeah. Black Widow, where, like, if this movie makes a billion dollars, ScarJo makes... 10% of the, the net profit or whatever. Right. Like, that was the issue that they had with the deal where Simu Liu yeah. is coming in and he's probably getting that, like, really shitty, like, first movie contract <laughs> yeah. where, like, it's, it's a five-figure payday rather than a six-figure payday or whatever. Yeah, because he's desperate to be in it. There is that famous tweet. I don't know if he still has it pinned to his profile, but, yeah, he called his shot years before the movie came to be. He was like, yo, Marvel, I want to be Shang-Chi. And then uh, fast forward several years and here he is. He's Shang-Chi. And... I'm not quite willing to say he's a phenom now or he's like a made man. It felt like it in the sort of three months immediately afterwards. It was like, oh man, this guy's great. He's here. He's in this. He's the star of this like well-liked, successful movie. This character's definitely going to be an Avenger. They're going to centerpiece around him. But it kind of feels like that's cooled off a bit. And that may just be actors' choices for, for stuff are limited because of COVID and he hasn't been able to follow up with that big second hit. Yeah, I think, I think there's that weird element of, like, because obviously he is bumbling along on the Canadian sitcom that isn't Shit's Creek. <laughs> and I feel like Kim's Convenience did kind of blow up a little bit afterwards, but it never reached the levels that Shit's Creek does. And obviously there's all the controversy when Kim's Convenience get cancelled during the middle of COVID and, the, and like the entire cast is like, we wanted to make more, but they just didn't want to do any more for us, essentially. Just like Glow. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and so obviously he shoots Shang-Chi before the pandemic happens. Yeah. Like, Aren't they shut down in Australia for like eight months waiting for filming to pick up again. Yeah, I think they filmed in Australia and New Zealand, and then also, obviously, Atlanta and a little bit of San Francisco. But yeah, and then... Australia obviously had the strictest... Well, New Zealand had the strictest COVID rules, but Australia wasn't far behind. Yeah, and so, so they finish Shang-Chi. It finally comes out last year in... August, <laughs> and then and then the only thing it feels like he signed up to at this point is Barbie, <laughs> where he's like dyed his hair blonde, and the cast for that movie is insane. I know, I'm so excited for that movie. Like Chris Gerwig and Noah Baumbach doing a Marco Robbie Ryan Gosling Barbie movie sounds mm-hmm. insane. <laughs> But you'd like to see a Simulu led movie. Oh, sure. Or sure. something in the wake of this. Because, yeah, I mean, they, they have 100% tuned him up to be a major part of their plans going forward. There is a sequel coming, you know, like the end credits all but basically say, yeah, you're an Avenger now, welcome. Um, so, you know, it costs, as all of these Marvel movies now cost, 150 to 200 million tax breaks, blah, blah, blah. Only makes 432 million. I mean, again, pandemic. It was the first thing i saw in a cinema it's still the ninth highest grossing movie of 2021 it's the second highest grossing marvel movie of 2021 yeah which does make it by default the highest grossing (laughs) actual marvel studios movie of 2021 yeah but they had to be counting on this being huge in china yeah and and i do think the issue is is that obviously this is the point where china has now like fully boycotted disney and marvel like none of these movies are coming out of there like even the fact that spider-man makes it to 1.9 billion dollars without china is still kind of crazy i i mean i think there's still other movies that have made more money outside of china than spider-man did but the fact that spider-man could have easily 
done a two yeah. billion if it had come out in China. Yeah, because is. like every one of these giant box offices that Marvel have achieved, a hefty portion comes from China. Not not all of it, you know, like Black Panther set domestic records. And I wonder if they thought they would be doing for Asian Americans what they were doing for African Americans or Black Panther with this and were hoping this would have a similar, like, giant box office, be very culturally important, open up a market, you know, strengthen the market in China, but no interest. All of the caveats we said, like, it's it's not it's not nothing during COVID. As I said, the first thing I saw in a cinema during COVID, yeah, I'm nervous just... to go and see it. And to be honest, I went to go and see it because the debate was playing out in my mind. If this fails, they will point to the fact that it had a non-white dude as the lead and they'll stop making movies with Asian Americans. Because there are very few Asian American-led movies out there. Especially, like, nothing I can think of that's, like, big like this. Yeah, I mean, that's things like, who are the bankable Asian American stars at this point? And it's like, Stephen Yun is probably the biggest. I don't think he's had the opportunity to, like, lead... He's, one of these movies properly. No, 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 no. Like, like he's, he's always, he's, like, you know, third, fourth on the cast, like, the friend kind of thing. Because <laughs> he's the interesting one, because obviously, like, Minari is, is fantastic, but it's a fundamentally, like, smaller movie, mm. and he's great in Burning, but Burning is a Korean movie made by a Korean director filmed yep. in Korea. You have from Shia's this, like, great white hope, and it's interesting because it feels like, I don't want to get too cynical, but it feels like the back-to-back choice of Shang-Chi and Eternals being directed by Chloe Zhao mm-hmm. feel like Marvel going like, this is going to play so well in China. And the fact that both Simu Liu and Chloe Zhao basically get like blacklisted from China based <laughs> off of like yeah. very old interviews or like outspoken comments they've got as people who have grown up or had a significant amount of their time spent in the West. The venom aimed at Simu Liu yeah. on like Chinese social media websites calling him like ugly and unattractive and stuff like that is mm. incredibly uncalled for. Yeah. And it's just wild to watch an entire country's propaganda machine basically turn against a film company, which are like fundamentally a capitalist force, but turn against them based off of the personality of like two stars. Because that's the thing, Spider-Man has functionally nothing controversial about it, and we'll get more into Spider-Man and whether or not like <laughs> are China purposely not releasing Spider-Man because they want to be able to come out of the pandemic and say we've got the highest grossing movie in the world. Potentially. Is, is, is the cynical <laughs> side of it, but like that's that's debate for another day. But it is interesting that like so much of this feels like it feels like both a propaganda war and also a, a turning point in terms of like isolationist yeah. political stances around the world. Yeah. You also can't overlook this is functionally a brand new IP for a lot of people. Yeah, you can talk some comic book corner stuff in a minute if you want with Shang-Chi, but like, you know, not a high profile comic book character debuting in live action. I think debuting in anything outside of a comic page, to be honest. I don't think he's even in like any of those cartoons that feature like seventy might, heroes. He might be in one of those, but like, okay. it tends to be kind of like one or two issues kind of thing. I mean like that's the other thing is like Shang-Chi is a character who's hung around, but his basic shtick is he feels like he's the off-to-the-side version of Iron Fist. Iron Fist yes. feels like if you're going to get Marvel uh, Marvel martial arts stories, you're going to go to Iron Fist first, which yeah. problematic in its own right, considering it's mm-hmm. like fundamentally a, a white American who has been gifted the power of the... And uh, he's like deeply cult. steeped in, in East Asian culture and like, you know, an expert in the field. And he's like blonde haired, possibly blue eyed, who pays attention to eye colours and comics. It also comes from a level of, so Master of Kung Fu debuts in 1974. Like it feels yeah. like it's very much a different era where what it's playing off of is kind of the black exploitation yes. and the importing of Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan. To... I think it's no coincidence you see Luke Cage. Iron Fist, Shang-Chi, all popping up around the same time. America develops a fascination with Kung Fu movies, and Bruce Lee, you know, becomes the huge star, like you say. And It did very much feel like he was trapped in that era, and he struggled to get out of it more than Luke Cage and Iron Fist did, because well, you're, you're able to modernise those two yeah, characters. The thing is, is that you have someone like Brian Michael Bendis coming in in the early 2000s and going, these are characters from my childhood, they work on a street-level team, yeah. I'm going to try and level them up to the same level as Daredevil, Punisher, Spider-Man, and have them on my Avengers team, and functionally, yeah. like, Luke Cage ends up leading an Avengers team, is, yeah. is the decision that happens there. Um, and, like, Shang-Chi has been an Avenger on one of the most high-profile Avenger books Jonathan Hickman's run but the gimmick there is Iron Man and Captain America decide we need the Avengers to be fucking huge so we're going to recruit 30 goddamn people and he deliberately tried to pick some more 
off the beaten path type characters to flesh out the team he has like one spotlight issue where he's the focus and then he like several other other characters on that team really suffer from not getting enough character development and they kind of just peace out before it's over yeah it's i mean i'm looking now at the wikipedia page for shang chi and it's like point one master of kung fu point two return in 1998 then it's heroes for height and then heroic age which is 2010 there really is not much going on in terms of like his history although there's some interesting things like wasn't shang chi one of the characters that marvel put up as collateral (laughs) for the initial like marvel deal to make iron man was yeah they wanted to make a shang chi in wave one i think i think they also wanted to make an iron fist in wave one like a movie but that was more hamstrung by the fact that these are the characters that we've still got access to (laughs) these are the characters that we haven't signed off to universal so that will will still never not be funny to me that like the characters that are now the a-list the avengers team they had were considered the scraps that nobody wanted and now they're bigger or as big as, as what they sold off. But yeah, Spider-Man and Wolverine are kind of like untouchable, but at yeah. this point, everyone's like, Fox is sat there with like Fantastic Four. Fantastic and... Four's rep has been like buried when they are historically like right up there. Daredevil's always been popular, but like, you know, the idea that like Punisher, Daredevil, Ghost Rider, uh, Namor, <laughs> I think the rights were owned by Universal, Jessica Jones, you know, all these characters that went off and got movies and got series and stuff like that, and then Marvel were left holding the completely irrelevant, not that popular Iron Man, Captain America, people like that, and then they made them into the Avengers, and now it seems like the most ridiculous thing in the whole world. Yeah, um, and now they're finally <laughs> circling back into this character who kind of has enjoyed a, a spate of relevancy in the last ten years. I feel like more and more people are using him. It's hard to say how much of that is they know a Shang-Chi movie is coming internally at Marvel, <laughs> and so they need to start doing some stuff. Well, I just but... think, like, Iron Fist obviously has the, like, name-brand value, but it is inescapable that Iron Fist should not be a white dude. <laughs> and, like, so many people were calling for, when the Netflix series came around, recast this as an Asian-American at the very least. Like, say he's never been to his native land, that he was born and raised in America, but at least make him Asian-American, so there's at least something to tap into. And, like, there's a reason Colleen Wing is, like, the triumph character in that series, and, like, she even ends up... Spoilers for those who are just waiting to watch Iron Fist. She ends up a fucking Iron Fist by the end of it. So, like... And she will come back up <laughs> in yes. this episode quite but there's, there's so much interesting stuff around that, because obviously the counterpoint at the time was people going like don't cast iron fist as an asian because it kind of sucks that every single asian character has to be related to like the asian mystic arts like we can't just have asian heroes who are being asian heroes and like someone like amadeus cho Mm -hmm. being hulk is probably a more quote-unquote revolutionary form of politicking into the world of identity that's diversity doing like a slightly more nuanced version of a stereotype is not Totally yeah, exactly. And so, but you have Shang Chi, who debuts in a book called Master of Kung Fu, mm-hmm. in a time where Asian and Black culture is kind of being fetishized for white audiences, yeah. right down to the fact. And probably the most famous piece of Shang Chi history is that is it his father, or is that just his the, father the, is Fu Manchu? His father is Fu Manchu, who is a character that Marvel cannot have the rights to anymore. Probably I not. Is, I believe is the issue. Even though Fu Manchu is like famous for being like cropping up in all kinds of like media or whatever it is, but is also one of those like huge gross stereotypes of kind of like the early 1900 pulp era where he is literally the definition of like any single villainous asian character that you see in movies or the buck teeth the the fu manchu beard wearing a robe oh i'm so mystical all of that shit uh is attached and like coincidentally (laughs) they also already uh had sidestepped a character similar, but not the same as that, with Trevor Slattery's Mandarin, and and how they handled that in Iron Man 3. Masterclass of how to handle that, if you ask Ben and I. But they decided, hey, let's circle back around and completely change, for the better, what the Mandarin is, and him just outright acknowledging, oh, some dumb fucking American or, or Westerner gave me that name, and it's a chicken dish. And his name is Wenwu, firmly, and he does not have the trappings that you see with Mandarin, uh, famously. So, you know, Mandarin becomes his father instead of Fu Manchu. I do feel... I mean, I may be misguided here. I haven't read much Shang-Chi, and I, I, I know that these elements do exist in the comics, like Talao and, and all this stuff, but I do feel, to an extent, they are handing him some stuff from Iron Fist and saying Iron Fist is never coming back, because... 
you know, Talao does exist, but like you immediately think Conlan. There's a dragon at the heart of it. The rings kind of functionally give him Iron Fist a like powers, especially when they like do the focused rocket punch or whatever, and giving him the magical mother, like massively changing Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi is just a dude who's really good at fighting in the comics. There's no he has, powers. He has a mastery of chi. Okay. That is how the Iron Fist works. It yes, and, and I, think, I think there was a brief moment where he could like duplicate himself, but there's so many characters in the multiverse that can duplicate themselves but like that was probably like a very brief thing yeah i feel like the role that he took was like he was a master of kind of the pieces of like asian culture that would bleed through into the marvel universe similar to how you have like if if something is happening that's like eastern mystical then they're going to go to shang chi for advice if something magical has happened they're going to go to doctor strange and that's kind of the role yeah. that he would fit was that like he never had a big run to define him yeah but I mean, it would be like Oh no, we're like we're going to Chinatown, and there's some like weird ghosts that are attacking. <laughs> Who can we go to for help? Also, the rings make you immortal, which is like the descriptor of Iron Fist, the immortal Iron Fist, and and like to change them from literal rings as they as they always were in the comics. And you have ten rings, each does a different power. To change them to like these arm bracelets that like kind of end up on his wrist and his fist and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I may just be sensitive because like you know I'm the world's only Iron Fist fan, but like it does feel a little bit like they're like guys. No Iron Fist. I mean, even down to the fact that, like, probably my favourite Shang-Chi story from the last ten years is drawn by the person who drew the most famous Iron Fist story of all time. Who also drew the most famous Hawkeye story of all time. But, like, that's because David Ayer is, like, an absolute beast. But, like, there is, there is an abs- there's an issue of um, Secret Avengers, which mm-hmm. is just David Ayer going, like, mental in terms of, like, making a, you know, the staircase room where the, none of the staircases can connect properly, and I forget the, yeah. the name for it. But, like, they basically draw the art for that, and it's just Shang-Chi fighting people on those, like, weird staircases cases where like they they go on forever it's really good it's just one issue in like a very brief run on secret avengers that's really worth it but like i think they are borrowing from it i think the one thing iron fist is retaining at this point is the the legacy aspect of it yeah i mean that's the thing that they're playing up in the marvel comics at the moment for Mm. iron fist is here are the kind of the five characters you have hereditary titles and we're like going to drill down into kind of like the the play of that over a million years is yeah that's and I, I find that really interesting, to be honest. Like, yeah, they, they've identified these sort of, like, five or six power sets that are, like, handed down. There's there's always an Iron Fist, there's always a Sorcerer Supreme, there's always... Um, a Black a, Panther, a Black there's Panther. always a Ghost Rider. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, like, to show the very first ones of each of them, and the very first Iron Fist is a woman, so, you know, get mad. And Asian. It's such a tricky one. I, I enjoy Iron, Iron Fist as a character. It isn't all coming from the show. I acknowledge the show is not great. But just in general, I'm a fan of Iron Fist, and I. But it is inescapable that like you can't have a white dude being Captain Asia. Um, so like, I don't know. And also, Finn Jones is clearly the weakest of the big leads from the Netflix shows. Disney have now reacquired all of those shows. We already know Charlie Cox is back. There are strong rumblings that like they will keep Jessica Jones and Punisher because both of those were really popular. I could see Mike Coulter scraping in with the group. I just can't imagine a world where they're like, yeah, Finn Jones, you're good enough. Come aboard. <laughs> thing is it gets weird though if i mean and let's do the colleen wing chat. yeah <laughs> like it gets weird if i feel like probably misty knight and colleen wing were probably the two most successful parts of iron fist and luke cage yeah and misty so, becomes a regular on iron fist season two so. <laughs> yeah and people like really love those two characters and i think people would be disappointed if they recast both of those characters yeah. the daughters um, of the dragon yes and <laughs> but the, the kind of the point is is that obviously they get really good actresses to play those parts mm. jessica hennick is someone who has been on shortlists for so many movies i feel like anytime there is like a a female actor in the last kind of like 10 years she is kind of on that shortlist obviously she kind of not makes her debut but makes her like franchise debut in force awakens where no one like the only her. <laughs> no one remembers her the only reason she's not in last jedi is because ryan johnson had to start production before they'd finished that movie and he just didn't realize that she hadn't been killed off mm-hmm. otherwise he would have brought hennick back for that movie potentially would have made her like rose tico's sister or whatever like and just like used a, yeah. a pre-established actress but yeah because she's on the shortlist all this time and all the rest of it like she, she's got this weird career where she keeps on taking the right franchises but getting given really shitty roles <laughs> she, she's she one of the sand snakes in game of thrones like in- intensely popular characters that hbo all but basically were like well 
We put them in to shut you up, but we have no interest in them. <laughs> Dawn is famously the most bungled piece of that entire uh, Game of Thrones. Like before you get to like what they do in the final season, like Dawn is woeful. Yeah, it's it's just one room, basically. Not a, a, a place the size of the other kingdoms, basically combined. We can't talk about Game of Thrones. Like she does that, she does Iron Fist. Uh she... she she signs up for Marvel at the peak of Marvel. Yeah. Like everyone's so excited for these shows, and obviously, in some level, the excitement is dissipating with each successive move, uh, TV show <laughs> at this point. Like, Daredevil season one, everyone's going mental. Like, yeah. Jessica Jones season one, everyone's like, my god, this is potentially better than Jessica uh, Daredevil season one, I feel like, is, is what some people's opinion is. It's, it's not, but it is very good. <laughs> Daredevil season two is kind of like, okay, there's there's some crack showing, and then it's like the one-two punch of like Luke Cage and an Iron Fist, and then basically <laughs> they cap it off with Defenders, and everyone's yeah. just kind of like, I, I think we're done now. But then Punisher, I think, went down pretty well. Um, Daredevil Season 3, like, you and I, every few weeks I tell you, just fucking watch Daredevil Season 3. It is excellent. I, I think it's better than Season 1, and maybe now it's on Disney+, Plus, even though it's been right there on Netflix this whole time and you haven't watched the, the, it. The only thing that my partner's <laughs> seen of the Netflix shows, I think, is Jessica Jones Season 1. I think now that Daredevil is going to be in the MCU, we mm. might we might power through yeah. it. I've got a bit too much on my plate at the moment in terms of like I'm watching all of Twin Peaks at the moment. Yeah. yeah. So once I'm done with that, puzzle, even if that doesn't do it, we will launch our comic book podcast. We will talk Daredevil every single issue, and that means we will also do the movie and the show. So we'll get you eventually. But... We will get me eventually. That is like a vague promise. At but some point but in the Jessica Hennick. Basically, like when this script is ready, they're basically prepping to film both the Matrix and this movie. And Warner Brothers and Disney basically say you have to pick a script. Whichever script you pick, you're probably going to get the role. Like you still have to audition, but like you can only audition for one of these. You would be a favorite for both of them, and this would be favorable. And, and I think it's telling that Marvel were going to let her audition mm. because you know you you asked me last night when they made Shang-Chi, did they know Charlie Cox and and, and Vincent D'Onofrio were coming back as Daredevil and Kingpin? Maybe not. But that they were willing to let this character, this actor, audition, and that they've had people in both. Yeah, pe- people have like played small roles in both of them, but this would be the first time that functionally, like a second or third lead is playing. I mean, a yeah. second or third lead in another major project. Mahashala Ali is Blade and Cottonmouth. Yes, yes. But that... Cottonmouth dead. Maybe they'll do some vague form of prosthetics. With it, just feels like Colleen, you know, was like in basically every single episode, and like that's a bigger deal, even though it had a smaller audience. Anyway, she's she's told she can only audition for one. She picks Matrix. She's excellent in Matrix, but every frame with the sister in my second watch, knowing that bummed me the fuck out because Jessica would have absolutely crushed this I think and would have become a huge star and I, you know I hope she is still going to become a star like Matrix obviously wasn't as popular as as they hoped it would be people are idiots <laughs> but yeah I, I just think I mean I, I, we haven't even started talking about the movie but like I look at Mengajan who is making her first big movie appearance. Um, like, she's, she's done stuff in China, yeah. hasn't she? Like, I she's th- a, but I think t- even the films she's done in China are like significantly smaller in scale. Oh, apparently she's like a big theatre actress, is actually yeah. the thing. Like, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is like her first like almost screen debut. Mm. And I mean, she's a good find. <sighs> My thing is, I think she is a good physical presence, but she's not bringing it in the acting. And, and it's surprising to me to hear that she is a theatre actress because... Every time they pan to her to make this emotionally engaging with Sean, it just falls flat. And I'm like, imagine if this was Henwick and you were getting both the physicality and you were getting that like empathy, sympathy, charisma that, that Jessica has. Like, and, I mean, and her taking the throne at the end as Jessica Henwick, as, as the new boss. I'm like, yeah, I could see her as, as maybe not the sole antagonist of the sequel, but like a one of the antagonists of the sequel. I, I could think, see that. I think... It helps that Mega has a, a kind of like a steely disposition that makes it feel like yeah. uh, she has been like let go let let down by like her entire family. Yes. Kind of bit. Whereas if Hennick was playing this, it would be kind of a little bit softer. Like there would be there would be a, some level of innocence, and the ending would maybe be a bit more tragic because it's kind of like a sense of innocence lost. The character tracks and like she is badass. Like she like she <laughs> she's very imposing when she just is standing mute. And the character tracks, as you say, that like you know she was always neglected by their father and then in the end she's the one that fucking takes up his legacy or, or and you know she she clearly feels some sense of like oh you killed dad without 
telling me, okay. But like, especially in that third, that final stretch, when they are together on the back of the dragon and like they're looking to each other and like, you know, he potentially has to let her fall and all of that stuff, I think needed that softer touch. I also think the other issue is, and, and it's an issue that kind of was coming up in, in Black Widow as well, is how busy this film is oh, in terms God. of, like, when you get to the second hour and functionally all the characters are together apart from Wenwu, you add in Trevor Slattery, spoilers, add in Michelle Yeoh coming yeah. in as kind of like a final point of, like, a, a wise Asian woman coming to teach the characters how mm-hmm. to do things. Uh, and you have Shang-Chi, Katie, and Xu Lang, like, or Zhu Ling altogether. And it's just one of those things where it's like, why do we have both a KT? And- uh, yeah, KT becoming a... I wouldn't say she becomes a master archer, but she does make that like insane shot at the end. Like, in a day, is like, come on. Because the thing is, Aquafina is, I, th- I think, the first person cast in this movie. I think yeah. when they announce Shang-Chi, it almost feels like it's an Aquafina vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you are coming off of this point where like she is the hottest up-and-coming name in, in comedy. Yeah, I feel for I, better or worse. <laughs> for better or worse, like obviously, there's an awful lot of talk about cultural appropriation in terms of like her dialect, mm-hmm. but she is coming up like she is in so many different things. Like she's in Ocean's Eight, she's in Crazy Rich Asians, she's got Farewell, which she is fantastic in as one yeah, of the best I hear that. 2019. Yeah. She has her t- Orkafina is Nora from Queens. Like she's just got all of this stuff that's going on, mm-hmm. and so it's like when this movie gets announced, and they're basically like, "Well, we need to find an unknown person to play Shang Chi." They kind of have to pin their hat on something, which th- is why they kind yeah. of stack the cast outside of Simu Lu. I think they were like open about the fact they wanted to find a, a relatively unknown person for Shang Chi. So they were going to, yeah, as you say, stack the supporting cast, and they do. Like, all of the names are <laughs> below him. In it, the... it, yeah, that's the thing. Is it's, it's brother and sister are relative unknowns, and then everything else is like, well, we've got Ben Kingsley, Michelle Yeoh, Benedict Wong, Orkafina, <laughs> Tony Lung. Like, yeah. And obviously Tony Lung is very much like, that feels like more of a play to go to the art house crowd and to the and to Asian cinema, which obviously completely backfires on the fact this movie doesn't come out. But like, <laughs> I think when is... they I think when they cast him, it was like, oh, they're serious. Okay, yeah. this this is going to be good. Actually, it was a very exciting casting, and it's like I now have total faith in whatever you're going to do with Mandarin because he fucking rules. <laughs> but yeah, and like Aquafina obviously catches heat that like she's doing the press tour for this, and she's dropped the black scent, which she claims is her authentic way she talks, and like everyone where I grew up talked like this and then suddenly she's not doing it when she's promoting Shang-Chi and it's like ah so you're kind of full of shit then aren't you <laughs> but you know her her career is a separate thing I think she's good in this and I think they like... have very good chemistry like they're, yeah, they they're believable as besties it's nice that it doesn't feel romantic yeah they don't go there like she has that brief moment she's like ah you got abs but like they don't really go there it's probably on the table if they want to but yeah yeah but it's like i'm thinking of the final scene where they're they're out for drinks with their like friend from college and and her husband or boyfriend or Mm. whatever it is and like they're being touchy-feely but it feels like such an authentic like we've just known each other for like 10 15 years so of course i'm going to touch his arm and it's it's a nice vibe to have in this kind of movie but also she feels like very much a conscious like we haven't had a cat denning style character Mm. in these movies for a while and the big failing we gave to cat dennings is that cat dennings never really got to get involved in the action and so like well true make her an archer i don't know it's just it's it's such an insane shot as well is the thing it's like i don't believe that the guy teaching her could have made that shot and, and <laughs> that thing is and then they double down on it in the next scene where like wong is like you're coming too and it's yeah like, it's like okay what are we doing here are you revealing that she is like gonna be something else like it feels very like making ned magical in spider-man no way home except it would be if it, it was ned's first appearance but it's like are you, are well, you right, set- yeah, but... yeah are you setting up her to be something like is she going to be the iron fist is <laughs> That we going with this? Like... Oh my god. Aquafina as Iron Fist. We just trade one kind of racial controversy for another. We've completely neglected to mention that um, one of our favourite directors, Dustin Daniel Cretton, is, is doing the thing that like I, we both love Short Term 12. You can go mm-hmm. listen to our episode of The Woo Movies where we gush about that movie. Yeah. It sets up probably a relatively successful relationship between him and Brie Larson. Mm-hmm. where Brie Larson is in literally every single movie that he's done since he's done Short Term 12. The Glass Castle does not 
not exist. <laughs> Just Mercy is an interesting movie. In the wake of the George Floyd tragedy, like there, a lot of people were releasing Just Mercy for free, yeah. people to watch about kind of like the uh, the plight of Brian Stevenson and like kind of like all the really important stuff he's done over his life in terms of like Death Row and uh, Death Row inmates and all the rest of it. It's a fine movie. It's just not kind of like on the level of Short Term Twelve, and that's why it's kind of surprising when you kind of realise that Destin Daniel Cretton is kind of like the preeminent Asian American filmmaker. Yeah, it's kind of fucked up because it's like there's one great movie that made no money. I have to assume. And then, like, not really that strong follow-up. But he lands Shang-Chi anyway. And, and, you know, you wonder, did Brie Larson suggest him? Did they just, like, look at the field of Asian-American actors and it's depress uh, directors and, like, it's depressing there are so few candidates? Or, you know, did he just fucking crush the pitch? Probably a combination of all three. He he directs, he co-writes with Andrew Lanham, who, who, Andrew Lanham, uh, who co-wrote all of his movies except for Short Term 12. And then they also put David Callahan on it, who has a shocking number of credits for a Marvel writer, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but he's like old school, yeah. like he's the person that you bring in to do your like nerdy movie, but like yeah, isn't yeah. necessarily like the most interesting person who's yeah. involved in it. Yeah, and much like Zombieland Double Tap, this movie's really good in the first half. <laughs> That's the thing for me, like, if anyone asks me what I thought of it, like, coming out of the cinema, I was very positive, I was like, oh, that was great, it was really refreshing, it was nice that they, like, showed you this window into into Asian culture, but without making it too insensitive. But, like, the further I got away from the movie, and, like, especially on the rewatch, it's like, this thing loses so much steam once they escape. Wenwu's Castle. I'm not saying every minute of it from then on is bad, but it feels like there's been such a shift. It, it becomes an uglier movie, it becomes a more formulaic movie. You made the interesting... I think you should repeat the suggestion you made to me last night that like about the level of control directors have. Yes, it feels like a lot of these movies are, because they are so storyboarded and pre-visualizationed and all the rest of it is that when you get to your act three the the director kind of loses all control and it ends up going to all the special effects artists and the person in charge of all that and sun coordinators and whatnot who are in control of the visual tone and the director at that point is functionally just doing right the person who does the special effects come in and put your put your marks on the floor hit your mark and we're all good it feels like that fully holds true for like literally every Marvel movie. All of the personality and the tone and the like genre-esque trappings are in the first half, the first two acts, maybe, if they've done well. Like, Winter Soldier stops being a 70s spy movie at the end. Even like The Avengers, like that's so Joss Whedon-y, so quippy, and like he's sneaking some quips in to the Battle of New York. But, but even the Battle of New York feels like a completely different movie to the... It does, but also, I mean, but I also know that Joss Whedon was making the suggestions, and I don't know how, sure. like, he might have been involved like way earlier than some of these things where you have him being the yeah, person who's like was... oh what if we do the single shot camera across all of New York Absolutely. and I feel like we're drifting further and further away from that where they're getting less and less established directors and less and less established directors who are used to dealing with big mm. special effects budgets and in the first few Marvel movies they weren't going to like all time great directors yeah. but like you can see the through line where John Favreau has done big budget movies he's done Zathora he knows how to do this and he obviously also has a very improvised heavy set that kind of like allows yeah. them to kind of change. Louis Leterrier, Johnston for, for Captain America, even Kenneth Branagh has done like big things where he's been on big blockbuster sets and stuff like that. And all of them are doing their best. And I feel like it's when they shift over into that like... Yeah, it's two, more phase two onwards. Yeah, like we've we've hired uh, the Game of Thrones guy. He's done big budget stuff. Oh no, he's gone. Um <laughs> Patty Jenkins, oh no. And that's when you start to see the people kind of like pulling out because they're losing control. It's when yeah. you hear all the time the scenes of turmoil with Joss Whedon and it's like, this what? thing is on rails now and they know how to make these movies. And, and you also have to wonder if it's like, in phase one, none of it's a sure thing. They are desperate for hits. I think they're more willing to listen. And then once they've become this giant money-making machine, they're like, right, we are the template, we are the blueprint, fall in line. And they piss and off I, I, a lot of directors. And, and it is it does track through where like you get these really funny, intimate, character-driven first halves, first two acts kind of thing, and then it's off to the sky base, it's off to the, the CGI crater, it's off to, let's have a fight in front of a giant door, and suddenly it's all grey, even though it's fucking beautiful and blue over on this side of the valley. Yeah, and I do think the other kind of important thing is that it's really noticeable. There are some directors who kind of like 
have no authorial comment on it and i'm sorry to to pick on john watts but like he is someone who like i could not tell you what a john watts movie is he's, off the he's back just of his a dude he, he's a he's a guy who's been in the industry for a long time and he fucking plays ball and, yeah and that's it. The, the fact that the russo's cherry was bad is the gray man the one with um with ryan gosling that's gonna be on netflix soon which looks yeah really quite generic but it's like the the people who kind of like get to have some level of like this control where i'm actually really positive on like the first hour or so are the ones who are writing the script mm-hmm. because cretton's got the the credit on this movie because watiti's got the credit on the, his movie because I mean, he's he uncredited on for he's uncredited yeah but i think it's an open secret that he rewrote basically the entire script yeah or even or at least the dialogue obviously you've got gun with gardens galaxy which is so thoroughly his thing that like you can have you have to imagine that he probably is having conversations with the special effects guys and it's but it does it does feel like they hand you they hand you the movie and they're like right you can flesh out this first however long but we've already storyboarded and started previews on here are all the nova ships forming a force field or mm. here's black widow falling from the carrier or, or whatever it is it fit you know this it feels like they're like right you can do what you want but this is what we've envisioned for our big blowout third act this is the huge plot thing we need to get to so you can't really override us on any of that and the things I think that do push this movie ahead of that, and I think it just about keeps its head above the water. Like, I mean, in my mind, I'm like, the first hour of this movie is like a four-star movie, and the back half of this movie is like a three-star movie, and I feel like you were a little bit, like, down on both um, parts of that. Yeah, I'd say, like, four-two. Yeah. <laughs> Where, it, like, so I'm coming in there and going, like, Bill Pope's still doing good work. Obviously, like, But he's great... just doing so noticeably less good work in that second half. Like, sure. Like, I mean, let, let's just talk about, like, the opening. It's fucking beautiful. This is probably the best opening stretch of a Marvel movie. Maybe ever. Like, Infinity War opens really strong with that first scene. There have been some really good openers, but, like, that, those first sort of ten minutes, none of it's in English. A lot of it has got no dialogue. You have this gorgeous, romantic duel between Wenwu and Ying Li. We talk all the time about how Marvel is sexless. It's also rather, like, romance in some ways and like there's just so much beauty in this this battle they're having it's so well shot but it's also because this is the one that like obviously bill pope or william pope is credited in this movie is (laughs) incredibly famous for the matrix yes and for the spider-man movies and for scott pilgrim like he 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 obviously knows how to shoot this kind of martial arts stuff very very well this is the the sequence of the movie that kind of feels most indebted to to wuxia filmmaking Mm. i kind of wish it lent into it a little bit more but Marvel are going to marvel it up and basically go like no flat colors because it's <laughs> watching a mobile phone at some point. I know. Oh, that blew my mind when when you gave me that as the reason because yeah, I, I've I, I'm not going to put names out there, but I have been told that like it's 100 a choice. It is not a technical limitation. All the brown, grey, orange. That was why my mind went when I realized like all of these movies are doing this. I'm like, is it just easier to do effects if there's lower lighting? And it was like, no, we can do we can do effects in full light. It's just Marvel tell us this is what we want and. Yeah. Hearing that it's <laughs> to do with fucking be able to play it on a fucking phone, or just it just like they know that not they want it to be able to be look base level good on as many theater screens as possible. Yeah. And there's so many badly projected theater screens around the world mm-hmm. that they're like, if you have the darks too black and it's a shittily projected or lit up screen, then the people are sort of going like, what? I can't see anything. And yet half the time, I think I can't see anything <laughs> in Marvel stuff like. Moon Knight episode 2 just came out when we're recording this. Some people are freaking out about like him dunking the jackal on the spike and, and whatever. That sequence is so fucking ugly, you can't tell what's going Like They have these cool ideas written down, and then it's like, now let's trip over ourselves in how we visually convey that. Yeah, um, and yeah, I'm sat here going, and it's my main issue with this kind of first scene, which is great, and my mm. main issue with the kind of the back hour of this movie is that, boy, wouldn't it be fun if you fully lent into being a mm-hmm. Wuxia movie. Yeah. Like, when the final fight starts in the end of this movie and it looks like a higher budget Power Rangers fight <laughs> like when they're like running at each other and they're doing the martial arts and I'm like boy <laughs> where's the wire work where's yeah. it going letterbox like why are we not leaning into the fact that you have history of like Asian cinema yeah. and you can do all this practically and instead it's like guns and yeah they're firing jungle. different colored lasers at each other against a very obvious green screen background and like, there's clearly some digital enhancement and probably even just 
actual green screen going on in that opening stretch, but it's so much less egregious than just this muddy, horrible backdrop where we know they're not in a hundred miles of wherever they're supposed to be. Even him training with Michelle Yeoh in that little circle of, of, of bamboo and all that, you compare that directly to the opening scene, and it's just so much so much uglier and so much more obviously CG. Even, even down to like the recreation of the scene in the opening where like Ying Li like steals the rings and yeah. like turns them into a Kamehameha like Kamehameha or whatever when they redo that with Shang-Chi versus Wenwu and you're like oh it looks worse because mm. you, you're filming this in very obviously like the entire room is blue screen because yeah. you haven't found an actual door to yeah. the and dark I'm like, world. Can this not just end in the shrine? to In the mother's shrine? I'm not saying that fight is like brilliant but it's better than the one that they have and like two minutes later and for me about a big part of it is like look dragons are cool why do we have to have a fucking dragon at the end of this movie why can't we just have this you've done all of the work everyone is incredibly emotionally invested in this relationship between this father and son they are invested in them individually and as a as a group dynamic you have it all there to have this intimate extended one-on-one fight that is just entirely about technique and moves and you have to be like Oh, surprise, here's the real villain. It's a giant fucking dragon-esque creature. And, like, the, the protector, the great protector is a cool design. The, the the Chinese dragon. The dweller in the darkness, the weird, almost Cthulhu-esque dragon, is just not as interesting. I don't, like... And to have it all boil down to this giant dragon sequence and, like, the scene where they're both running down it to do their final bullshit is, is horrible looking. <laughs> I think the issue is is the idea that the, eno- the like the emotional denouement of this movie shouldn't be when we're failing and doing something dumb and bad as like as you say like you kind of wish this movie ended with him just being delusional i wish and, yeah i wish he was just hearing voices like that there actually is a demon behind a door that's trying to seduce him into thinking his wife's still alive i'm like oh come on well if he was just like a completely broken by his grief and had just gone insane but the thing is this i think this movie basically posits well we've called it and the legend of the ten rings yeah. therefore we need to have one final moment of shang chi taking control of the ten rings which but is you why can you still end up- do that like <laughs> I, but that's the thing is, I think because they have it after when Wu dies, they basically are saying like this is the climax of the movie is Shang Chi becoming master of the Ten Rings, sure. and and not. He's got to use them on someone who can defend themselves, not just a human man who would just get absolutely spanked by them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the kind of the core mistake here. And again, it's mm. the issue that all these Marvel movies have is that like we need to end with a big CGI yeah. battle, or whatever. And I will say, I do think that like. At a base level, I think very obviously, because this probably was in production for so much longer than it was intended to be, hmm. and because it, it's such a big feat and probably had very little involvement from, from Cretan in terms of like the actual like choreography of it all, they're probably hmm. working on this dragon fight for so long. Yeah, it, it does look better than the average two monsters fighting fight. It's the, just... the, the thing that looks bad is, again, it's the flat colours of the scene because obviously the Great Protector is like really like kind of, you can tell there's some like colour intent going on there but yeah. like it hasn't been fully committed to. The, the things that look bad are the compositing of the blue screen mm-hmm. on the back of them but again it still looks massively better than the compositing of the blue screen during the scene where like Yelena is like destroying <laughs> the helicopter. The helicopter. Yeah. Um, and, like, good compositing is hard to come by. And it tends to be kind of like the the best kind of compositing comes from moments when you're filming on a road and you just have a blue screen that's giving you a background. Yeah. But even that, like, that can get distracting, as Moon Knight is showing us by the fact that, like, the <laughs> London that they're in is not London. Fuck no, it is not. I, I feel compositing, like, a lot of things, and it's done well, you don't even notice it. It's like, yeah, we're, exactly. we're, we're making the snow a bit whiter, we're making the, the sky have a few more stars in it, like, that kind of thing, rather than, like, oh, we're in this place, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> the things that make it difficult are if the background is moving a yeah. lot, yeah. it yeah. begins to get really hard to yeah. to composite. Whereas if it's a stationary, like still image, like we've been doing that for years, with, like matte paintings and films and stuff like that, which can yeah. look gorgeous. But if you are doing a high stakes kind of like everything is shaking and exploding around you, it's mm. just really fucking. Hard. And it's it's why a lot of the time they end up replacing the actor with a digital variant because like they just can't they basically just recreate the entire shot in digital (laughs) i think a lot of the time because it's like yeah it's cool you tried but this is too messy for us to work that's the thing is like this is all us just ragging on the the first act but it's like this movie opens with a really good showcase of like what tony lung's doing which is Mm -hmm. like actually like because he has done wuxia movies yeah so he he can do this shit he is obviously a legend of kind of like 
Chinese cinema, like Hong Kong cinema and stuff like that. He is he is absolutely incredible. We've again talked about him at length in our Chunking Express episode for the movies. <laughs> a beautiful man. A beautiful man. And the thing is, and they get and that's the thing is they get to utilize so much of what he does well because he's just so you, fucking sad, Ben. He's so sad, but also the romance is so nice, yeah, and like yeah. you can tell it through the fight scenes and stuff like that. And then you immediately cut to Simu Liu and Aquafina being having good chemistry and good yeah. banter and having a bit of fun and then immediately into what is probably a like top 10 fight scene in the mcu yeah. on the tram yeah the tram bus like much touted in the trailers and lives up to it is great i mean the strength especially in the first hour like is they can just do these wider shots and they don't have to do as many fast cuts they don't have to, like, not show the face because Simulu can do stuff. Yeah, Simulu can do it. William Pope is, like, a good cinematographer. Yeah. So, like, when you have the shot, like, outside the bus and they're, like, fighting through the interior and stuff like that and there's no cuts, and you're like, oh, this is this is good. Yeah. yeah. Why, why do not more of these fight scenes look like this? Yeah. And that was so pronounced for me on a second watch that we're on that bus within 20 minutes that first 45 minutes especially moves so fast in a good way like we're in macau by like 30 35 minutes we're fighting on the side of the building in 40 45 you know like it's like well we're motoring through this like we've had three really good fight scenes in under an hour and like i'm really loving these characters like wenwu is such a more nuanced character than we're normally uh quote unquote treated to where a lot of them are mwahaha villains and he is just, he's undoubtedly a deplorable human being. A massive sexist, like, wants to burn Tao Lao to the ground, uh, all this stuff. But then there's, he's not faking it. Like, he is genuinely smitten with this woman and, like, having the wholesome family. They're playing fucking dance mat rhythm games together and, and all of this shit. Like, he completely, like, he, he takes the rings off is his main thing. And he's like, she died because I wasn't wearing the rings. And then he goes full tilt the other way and he becomes worse than ever, arguably, even though he was, like, functionally a warlord throughout history. And those flashback scenes are so powerful throughout the whole thing. Like, that that's the part of the, the final act that still works is when they give you that reveal of what happened with the mother, that Shang did kill someone at age 14 and they don't hide away from that. And all that stuff is still working. And that, that final moment in the fight where they montage together all of the times of father and son looking at each other, including him holding his infant child. And it's like, that works so well. And you've done a really good job of grounding this with the family bond, the flashbacks, all of that stuff. And yeah, yeah to, and to achieve, to pull off both Wenwu and Shang and, and Katie and San Francisco and all that movement and everything. Incredible first 45 minutes. Yeah, it's just that issue of all these Marvel movies basically going like, we need to have a reason that people will come to the cinema to see this. Like there needs to be something that people feel like like makes them feel satisfied they've come to the cinema. And the thing is, as we discussed last week, there are franchises that are still doing practical effects, that are still doing like these kind of like huge action set pieces where the fate of the world isn't actually at stake. Mm. But they still feel like emotionally resonant and satisfying. And Marvel keep on basically going like, no, no, no. Because we're a comic book, because we're fantastical, we can go that little bit bigger. And it's like just for once take your foot off the pedal make it that person's world not the the whole world (laughs) i mean like even down to it like you think like i mean obviously iron man one like both of us are on the same page in terms of like we don't particularly like once bridges is in the ironmonger suit yeah but that still is fundamentally just a one-on-one fight really and it's like i wish i wish for the simplicity of that era even if i wish that one of you wasn't like both of you weren't in giant cgi suits yeah like the world started with avengers really like even thor it's like you know this town is fucked captain america is all set in the past and like you know maybe the nazis win the war but we know they don't and from avengers onwards it's like suddenly it's the world like malekith is going to conquer all of that of of midgard and and then the guardians like the whole planet is going to blow up and yeah and at, at some point it's like either you guys need to do something that no one's ever seen before with these special effects. And that's even down to, like, the, probably the best stained sequence in Fall of the Dark World is the the, the multiverse, like, popping through all the portals yeah. stuff in that movie, where it like, feels like, oh, you're you're trying here. Mm-hmm. And then you get to like, all these other movies where it's just, let's get more of a thing that's um, kind of like a faceless, a faceless villain. And again, I think the benefit here is it is just a one-on-one dragon fight, but it's still so depressing that like you've had this movie that is dripping in wuxia tone, mm-hmm. but not fully committing. And then by the end, they're like, right, but you know what? None of these old 
Asian mystical like martial arts movies could do. They couldn't do the fucking like dragon versus dragon fight because mm. they do Godzilla kaiju stuff. And you're yeah. like, yeah, but that's got charm. That's got like creativity to it. I, I would I, rather I, see two people in giant fucking suits fight each other. <laughs> this movie. There has never been a more appropriate one guy versus one guy fight set up on the table to be your final moment in a Marvel movie ever, I don't think. Even, like, you know, everybody fighting Thanos has to have some degree of, like, giant special effects nonsense going on. Like, these two should just be having a fucking gritty fist fight to the death in the mode of a Bond, a Mission Impossible, a Bourne. Like, this should just be just, like, heartbreaking just Yeah, just it, should, fist it fight. should be intimate. And, like, you, you, it's especially grating that six years ago they knew they had to do the intimate closing fight between Cap and Tony. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's wild that they still haven't realised that like sometimes the intimate fight hits harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the rings, I think, look really cool. Like, they've done some really, there's a good variety of shit that he does with them. He's doing, like, rocket punches, but he's also using them as, like, a whip. He's firing them off as individual projectiles that come back to him. All kinds none, of... None of this from the comics, by the way. No, like, In the comics, <laughs> the ten rings are, like... They're just rings. No, they're like possessed by like alien beings, or uh, and like they've all got different voices. I mean, this is from Kieran Gillen's run, where like they've all got a different power that gives them like right. ice blast or like disintegration. But they've all got like they're sentient and yeah, are yeah, able yeah. to like which by... they're potentially hinting at at the end of the movie with like these are like some of the oldest things to exist and there's a beacon and like there is a subtle suggestion that perhaps the rings are literally corrupting Wenwu rather than he is just a bad man who's obsessed with what they can give him they don't go all the way with that but But it's also like because it isn't based on anything in the comics you kind of have this issue that's been pervading the Marvel movies at this point where it's like where are we going with this like is this going to be a Shang-Chi 2 problem for them to solve if is this going to come up in the Marvels because you've got Brie Larson and and Bruce yeah. Banner in for the, the, the final scene. I or think they like the Avengers having, level yeah. event. I think they're very aware that in sort of particularly phase three, but sort of the tail end of phase two, the fandom got real into the treasure hunt aspect of what magical objects that we've already seen are Infinity Stones, where is the last Infinity Stone going to be, oh they coincidentally spell Thanos, which means this one must be an H, so is it the heart-shaped herb, you know, all that sort of stuff and I think they just want to replicate that, and they want to have five magical somethings ten mystical whatevers seven scientific things, five gold rings I don't know what it's going to be, are they all going to be weapons are they going to be artifacts, are they secretly going to be some other very niche thing that are similar to Infinity Stones, but different are we going to recreate fear itself or each avenger gets a mystical magical weapon are the rings calling the builders are we going to do fucking jonathan hickman x-men i who knows who knows i think that's the interesting part is that like spoilers for or eternals episode but you've got two post-credit scenes that feel like (laughs) the most egregious form of what marvel's doing because at, at the very least with the benefit of us knowing that we're building up to thanos like, mm. All of the post-credit sequences for Phase One through Three are all building up to. It's a very obvious signpost of what it means. Whereas yeah, they're exactly. now just hitting you with like, "Here's some guy," and it's like, "What?" I mean, <laughs> like people not knowing it's Mahashala Ali. His voice at the end of Eternals. People not knowing like what a celestial is. What is what is a celestial? Where is Harry Styles taking them? What's going on? Sorry, this is the most basic of things. Like oh, they're old. And they're sending some kind of signal somewhere. So, okay, now next you have to tell me where that somewhere is or who might be listening to it. Or... But that's the thing, is that's the smart thing that Avengers does, is that all yeah. the post-credit sequences in Phase 1 are sort of like levelling up to Avengers, aren't they? Yep. Every single one of them is building up to, we know we're going to Avengers. Like, we've committed, we're going to do Avengers. Yeah, like The first right. one is, welcome to the Avengers initiative, Tony yeah. Stark. And then, in Avengers, they debut Thanos. And it's like, there we go. You've now set up a decade mm-hmm. worth of movies. We have not had a threat set up yet outside um, of the Loki finale potentially debuting Kang. But yeah. it's like, we don't even have, like, it's way more interesting if you cut to fucking Annihilus mm-hmm. in space somewhere, tracking the rings, whatever it is. Yeah, because even if, and a lot of people didn't know who Thanos was, even if you don't know who it is, it's like, okay, I understand that's supposed to be someone. And then every future thing talks about him, points towards him, shows him again. And you're like, okay, I get that this is supposed to be a big 
person and to you know just show me a face even if you're not going to tell me who it is like show me doom show me Annihilus, show me galactus like yeah like like give me some level of grounding for where you're going or give yeah. me some kind of like signposting for what movies i need to pay attention to <laughs> is i think the issue at this point because it's like we don't know how well these movies are going to have done we don't know whether or not shang chi 2 is in production or like in pre i think they've confirmed there is a sequel coming i just sure. don't think anything's happened towards it yet but like Eternals, was that too much of a flop for them to want to do more with it? Are those characters going to crop up in other situations elsewhere? And I think so. I think you're going to get again spoilers for next week. The few surviving Eternals characters, or like the ones that they're like, these guys were successful. Let's bring them back. I think they're just going to pop up in some other spacefaring movie. Yeah, but then you have it. It's. I think it's the interesting part where like. I understand what the instinct was for 2021. The instinct was the TV shows will be here is the immediate aftermath of Endgame. The movies will be here are us introducing you to a new cast of characters, which yeah. would have been the Eternals, Simu, and and Florence Pugh is what the what the plan was. And TV and the TV shows will be One Division, Falcon Winter Soldier, and Loki, and that will be it. Like and Hawkeye. Gonna, the Hawkeye wouldn't have been in 2020 oh, right, yeah, originally because yeah, yeah. obviously they stopped filming that until the very end. So that would have been the, an actual 2021 show, yeah, like, through yeah. and through. So the, the TV shifts the status quo, the movies introduce a whole new gang of people for you to get invested in. And then, um, and then 2021, in what the original circumstances were going to be, was going to be Thor. Here are all the sequels. <laughs> yeah, Thor know. Strange and, and Black Panther. Which would have been a killer year if, if you remove COVID, if you still have Chadwick all that sort of stuff but anyway we're straying very far away from Shang-Chi and we, we've talked about Shang-Chi but like I, I, th- I think it's just an interesting movie because it's such a focal point introduction to like I think this is a very good first solo movie I think yeah, it's on the yeah, upper yeah. end of those first solo movies I think it's just we're coming at a point where we're 10 years into this and it's simultaneously a perfect microcosm of all the things that kind of are the weakness of Marvel at this point and also a kind of like a weird signposting for like the things that they're maybe not really acting to enough in terms of like asserting their dominance over this field mm-hmm. where like it feels like because we've now ended Endgame and like you've lost that initial confidence in terms of like they built a cinematic universe everyone is fucking invested and now we're at a point where like they're doing the mistakes that all the other cinematic universes were doing by basically having teases for things that you don't know what their teases for like this is the equivalent of like we've put Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde into our the Mummy movie because we're hinting <laughs> at the Dark Universe kind of thing <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like you say, like despite all of how I feel, it lets itself down as it around the halfway point towards the back, and I'm still fully game for a second one. I think you know they, they've they've positioned Shang-Chi and they've positioned Simulu really well. There is more charisma there than I expected, even though the character is kind of quiet and vulnerable. It's interesting that like Katie is far more Americanized than him, where she's, like, reluctant to speak Chinese. She very reluctantly gives up what her Chinese name is to Wu when he questions it. The guy at the fighting ring is like, oh, I speak ABC, which I found a very funny phrasing. Um, <laughs> I, I like all of that. And, like, you know, Shang is hiding that he grew up in East Asia and hasn't always lived in America. Obviously speaks in an American accent and, like, you know, calls her Katie. He doesn't call her by by the Chinese name that she reveals and he doesn't really speak to her in Chinese. Uh, he speaks it to her family. But I find that an interesting dynamic that, that she is so much more Americanized than he is. And, you know, you wonder if not doing well in China, well, <laughs> China boycotting it and attacking it, will they shift the focus more to America? Will it be, like, the Ten Rings attack America kind of thing? And, and will there be more American focus or will they stick with it go to space is that what the plan is maybe maybe we'll go to space but yeah, what, do you yeah. want, what do you want to do first? Do you want to combine Villain Watch and or Marvel into one? Because <laughs> oh, yeah. So Wenwu is a very, very good villain. Top, you know, actually good. We know what he thinks. He is a character in the movie. He isn't just waiting at the finish line to be fought. Tony... His big again, his big weakness is that he doesn't really get to be the final emotional moment of the movie. It's like that's not the pin. It and... fucked me up how much runtime was left when he gets taken out and the monster emerges. I was like, whoa, really? I thought we had just like five minutes to the end at this point but nope he's so good he he is one yeah. of my favorite actors i've i've watched yeah. all of like one cinema like he's 
obviously like the original lead of Infernal Affairs. It's just an incredibly charismatic person. Like it's yeah. such a big swing, such a big stake that like is one of those interesting things where like I don't think people who aren't in the know in terms of like international cinema are sat there going like, Oh cool. It's just it's just a good villain kind of thing, whereas everyone else is like, Jesus Christ, they like They got Tony Leon. <laughs> they got Tony Leon. And yeah, I mean he, he's so good and he's immediately like I think he's on the lower end because I don't think he gets the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the 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 ending that kind of like the great great villains got but he is in that top banding it's just he is he sadly has to kind of like fit behind vulture and yeah yeah Thanos he, he, and yeah of, of the big big group he he is bringing up the rear of, of of that top level but he's comfortably in it it's not like he's scraped in but he's undoubtedly the pick for our all marvel list so you know one one performance per movie on the the all-time list and if anyone isn't good enough we we keep a spare and we come back and all that so like it's not the simulu or okafina or anyone else in the movie is bad it's just he is clearly on another level I mean, to I mean, all the, of fact, the fact that we've barely spoken about michelle yo might be the most depressing part of all this it's just she feels such a weird obligation a better movie wouldn't need her and, or I mean, would do more with her. Yeah, I mean, it's not out here at the moment, but it should be out very, very soon. But, like, everything, everywhere, all at once is getting, like, absolutely rave yeah. reviews. And Highest like, rated movie ever right now. Yeah, I'm so <laughs> excited to finally get to it. It's, it yeah. I'm downright pissed that Sky have bought the rights to it, so it's only going to be viewable <sighs> at home, so it's not going to be in cinemas. And But then the other thing that we really need to talk about is there is a previous All-Marvel winner on this. In this movie. Yes, is Sir Ben Kingsley better than Iron Man 3? And I'm going to say, rousingly, fuck no, he's not. <laughs> No, um, not. this is. It feels like what could have been a fun one-scene cameo to yes. kind of like underline the kind of the end point of what All Hail the King does, mm-hmm. and instead, like he becomes the fourth lead of yeah. the final act. Of Absolutely. Movie. If they encounter him in the dungeon, and he gives them a little bit of exposition, and he confirms, "Yes, I was hired to play essentially an unflattering version of your father's legend," and then it turned out he was real, and he captured me to kill me, and then they leave him in the dungeon. Cool, love it, love that they did it. That he comes with them and has so much dialogue and is basically the fourth protagonist and fucking the character design on Morris and the creatures in general, like, I guess it's cool. Uh, Morris is sort of cute. That Morris is in it so much. I'm like, oh, come on, guys, let's dial it feels, this back. It feels like a really blatant, like, we need to get some merchandise sales from this kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And obviously there was the whole controversy with people going like, wait, why is there a Pokemon in this movie? And it's like, it's, oh, God. it's just a piece of, like, Asian mythology. But yeah, like, Ben Kingsley is not doing Doing better work here. No, I, I you know, he's still got a baseline of like he is a funny, entertaining guy, but like it's nowhere near. I think he's engaging when he's giving the directions and like just the just his delivery of like hard left here in the middle of like him giving this like pep talk or whatever is enjoyable. Or like, but... you know, we will never understand that oh no, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> he is obviously a consummate professional who could do this in yeah. his sleep. But it's when you have him basically like I can't remember if it's like before when Wu's died or like just uh, just after whatever it is, but like Morris finding Trevor Slattery like on the ground like dead and you're like, oh no, is he died? And then Morris he just kinda of gets up and goes like no, we're acting and it's like, oh god, why does everything have to be a joke? Why are you still in this movie? Teaching them to play football and calling offside and yeah, yeah. So so yeah, he is not better. Tony Leung undoubtedly gets on the list for this movie. Uh, we still have the spare pick. We still have the spare pick, and we have um, two actors, two actresses in compar- in, in contention for it. Yeah. Um, um, and circle- maybe there is a movie next week. <laughs> will not have a consensus pick maybe not to briefly tie up a tiny bit more of villain watch like you know we do have secondary and tertiary villains we're normally just talking about the the big bad when we talk about this section but just to acknowledge the existence you want to you want to talk about your love of razor fist i mean razor fist sucks death <laughs> death dealer has a cool design i wish death dealer were in it a lot more you know just, you know i'm not saying like it's fine to have henchmen in movies that aren't compelling characters as long as you have the main big bad but like we haven't mentioned them anywhere in the movie so i just thought i would say that um but yeah when Wu is actually good tony leung welcome to all marvel yeah any any final thoughts on shang chi a movie where i feel we talked around it a lot and didn't actually talk about the things i mean that we... i think i think it, it's a great first hour that you kind of wish committed to being more like what it's trying to evoke yeah. and it's sort of one of those things where it's like there is a world in which like maybe ang lee never does hulk and obviously Hulk is a, a fucking fascinating movie in terms of, I mean, what there's the famous quote in terms of Hulk where where the, the lead writer comes out of that movie having seen Spider-Man and they're just wrapping up production on Hulk and he calls Ang Lee and basically goes like, we're fucked. <laughs> the audiences are going to reject this because there is now a template for what superhero movies look like and it's Spider-Man. But like, uh, there is a world in which 
imagining Sam Raimi is coming back to superheroes with Doctor Strange and Ang Lee is coming back to superheroes with Shang-Chi where you're like, ooh, what are we doing here? And like he makes a movie that's kind of more indebted to Crouching Tiger yeah. or, or whatever. And like you're like he's he's kind of like cutting to the core of it in that way. And I mean, I'm being a little bit regressive in terms of just picking like the most famous Asian director. <laughs> we should have wire work. We should have the full Wusha trappings and everything. And all of that vanishes in the final act. It's muddied by it being an American production, and American yeah. movies are made in such a way which decenter kind of like stunt teams. Just go get but... the crew from Into the Badlands who presented Wirework from beginning to end through good and bad of that show in general. The fucking production on the Wirework and the Wusha elements is solid from start to finish, and it's like I can't believe this is on television. But too late for that now. Yeah, it's you know as we said they've set this character up well. You know our post credit scene. You know as we said, uh, I guess we did actually talk about it. But like you know the Wong brings them in to ask about the rings. They are confusing science, magic, and space in the form of Banner, Wong, and and Captain Marvel. Welcome to the circus. You're coming to you know he's an Avenger now basically, and and you have to imagine that he is a, a central part of the Avengers. Whenever we see an Avengers team, I'm excited for a sequel. Still, I think everybody did a good job like do you get Tony Leung to do some more flashbacks like does it work without him maybe maybe not but we'll see easily Marvel's best movie of 2021 I mean, I, I haven't watched Spider-Man I think Spider-Man is currently head of it in my like letterbox list of 2021 would, movies but yeah. like I am fully prepared myself to go like am I going to drop this down <laughs> as a point based on like what everyone's saying like without that opening night audience mm. who are cheering every single thing that's going on am I going to be a little bit more yeah. tempered in my Spider-Man I, I hard dropped on it as a spoiler for a few episodes time and I, I had the realization this morning I think DC have had the best superhero movie three years in a row it seems difficult to imagine something is better than the Batman this year I think the Suicide Squad is better than all of the Marvel movies last year yep. and by default Wonder Woman 84 I think was the only one that came out in 2020 no no that's praise out Okay, yeah, Birds of Prey I, I like better than Wonder Woman 84 and Birds of Prey is really good. So DC have managed it three years in a row from my count. And then the year before they obviously had the best superhero movie with Joker. So next week, <laughs> I, I speaking do wanna... of, of not great things... <laughs> No, go on. Have you got any? No, one one little chat. Like, I mean, I watched this movie at the end, and I text you to say that like Benedict Wong is getting like fucking paid. Yeah. For all of this stuff because he's in this. He's in Spider Man. He's going to be in Doctor Strange too. And then I also realized he like he's in Raya and the Last Dragon as well. Is he the highest grossing actor of the 2020s so far? Possibly. Just by Possibly. default. Good dude. Happy for him. Happy that Wong isn't just like a just the manservant. Like he is a character in his own right, and he sort of has overtaken Strange. He's the Sorcerer Supreme. It's just funny that, like, because obviously he used to be this, like, very svelte kind of, like, comic guy who would show up <laughs> in things like Moon and, like, would have, like, these really small roles. And then he obviously, like, massively bulks up to play Kubla Khan on Marco Polo. And now, like, he's, like, kind of like what he is right now. And, like, I think he's just... He's so good at just cropping up and being, like, one line of dialogue in a comedy show or, like doing the dramatic stuff that you need him to do. Just consummate mm. professional. A lot of love for Benedict Wong. Hope yeah. he gets in, getting lots and lots of money for this. We'll probably talk about him at length in yeah. two more things. Singing um, Hotel California with them at the end. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, he's up for doing the comedy and he's yeah. up for doing the drama. Like, Destin Danny Crane, good taste. Anderson Pack in the in the end credits as well. Right, we simply must stop talking about Shang-Chi. I know, this is another one that you're editing, so... <laughs> you fucker. Because yeah. you're doing the good ones. I'm fucking editing Falcon the Winter Soldier and Black Widow. Yeah, true. And Eternals. And Eternals. You will get the reward of Spider-Man if you still like Spider-Man. <laughs> anyway, uh, next week is the Eternals. Strap in, folks. <laughs> Academy Award winning director Chloe Zhao's The Eternals with ten heroes on the same team, plus supporting characters, plus quote-unquote a villain. Um, and they shot outside which blew Kevin Feige's mind. I know. This is real, guys. But yeah, thank you, Ben, for, for your contributions to this episode. Thank you, Matt. And uh, until next week, Excelsior. Excelsior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You was cruising with your top down for the July. I was moving down the block. We got caught at the light out my window. I was shooting my shot. Watching fireworks in the sky.